At the moment, I'm asking myself how people think about complex wholes like the ecology of the planet or the climate uh, or large populations of human beings of, that have evolved for many years in separate locations and are now reintegrating. And I find that to think about these things, you need something like systems theory. And so I went back to thinking about systems theory two or three years ago, which I hadn't for quite a long time, consciously. Uh, I went back to having learned about it as a child from my parents. What prompted it was concern about the state of the world. I mean, one of the things that I guess we're all seeing happening is that a lot of work that's been done to enable international cooperation in dealing with various problems of uh, since World War II is being pulled apart. Uh, we're, we're seeing the progress we thought had been made in this country and race relations being reversed. Uh, we're seeing the uh, partial breakup, we don't know how far that will go, of United Europe. Um, we're moving ourselves back several centuries in terms of thinking about what it is to be human, what it is to share the same planet, uh, how we're going to interact and communicate with each other. And we're going to be starting from scratch pretty soon. There was an interface with AI because two or three years ago uh, I got invited, I started getting invited to do things with the American Society for Cybernetics and I kept saying, well, I haven't done anything about, thought about that for years. And they kept saying, yes, you can do it. And um, I got invited to write a chapter for a huge handbook called The Handbook of Human Computation, which was based, basically what they mean by human computation is uh, human computer interfaces of various sorts. And I said, I don't know anything about that. Go away. And then again, uh, I'll send you all the... Oh, no, the second thing was, well, since you don't have time to write a chapter, please write the preface. And I said, how am I going to do that if I can't write a chapter? Um, and he says, well, I'll send you all the abstracts. So I, I became very cranky and cross and said, get somebody else to do it. And I keep getting these, he's sending me things to read. And I sat down and wrote, well, first I searched Google about what, what, did, what is human computation? And found I did know about some corners of human computation. So I wrote everything I knew about human computation, sent it in and said, see, I don't know anything about it. He published it.
And then I went to a conference, and then I started all of a sudden to be back in the conversation with people working on uh, AI, um, and realizing that I'd learned an awful lot as quite a young person, even as a child, uh, from my parents who were involved in the cybernetic Macy conferences right through the 50s. And they and other figures that were involved, like Warren McCulloch or um, many other people, were drifting through the house and having conversations all the time, and I was listening. Well, I didn't go straight to AI. Um, I think I, you know, I was nibbling at edges of it. Um, and, but realizing that our capacity to think about complex interactive systems seemed to be falling apart. That a great many efforts towards international cooperation were falling apart. Uh, that states that involved multiple ethnic systems or dialects and so on uh, were breaking up. Um, and indeed that societies like the United States with many ethnic groups and racial groups were having a progressively harder time uh, to co co cooperate. Um, now, we all think with metaphors of various sorts, um, but, and we use metaphors to deal with complexity, but unless, I mean, I think the way human beings use computers and the way they use AI depends on their basic epistemologies, uh, whether they're accustomed to thinking in systemic terms, uh, whether they're mainly interested in quantitative issues, uh, whether they, they're used to playing with, with, uh, with using games of various sorts, a great deal of what people use AI for is to simulate some pattern outside in the world. But on the other hand, people use one pattern in the world as a metaphor for another one all the time. So Americans are inclined to talk about war against drugs, or war against poverty, or war against cancer, um, without saying, is war an appropriate metaphor? It's a way of talking about complexity, but if it doesn't fit, it will make you make errors in how you deal with your problems. So the war on poverty failed, partly because poverty is not something you can defeat, and that makes warfare an inappropriate metaphor. And the same is true with the war on drugs which has gotten us into really ugly situations. Well, I think one of the problems 
when you, when you bring technology into a new area is that it forces you actually to oversimplify. That is, I mean, the, the possibilities of AI have been there from the very beginning of, of thinking about computers. Um, and there's always this feeling of disappointment that there are limitations to what you can do and the attempt to do more complex things we keep trying to do. Well, until, fairly, until fairly recently the artificial intelligence didn't learn. Um, I mean to, to, to create a machine that learns to think more efficiently was a big challenge. Uh, and, and in the same sense, um, one of the things that I wonder whether, how we'll be able to do it. How do you teach a machine to know what it doesn't know that it might need to know to address a particular issue productively and insightfully. Uh, because this is a huge problem for human beings. I mean, it takes a while for us to learn to solve problems. And then it takes an even longer while for us to realize what we don't know that we would need to know to solve a particular problem. Uh, which obviously involves a lot of complexity. Uh, so that was one of the questions that I felt is how do you how do you deal with with ignorance as as um, I don't mean how do you sh shut ignorance out how do you how do you deal with an awareness of what you don't know and you don't know how to know in dealing with a particular problem. When Gregory was arguing about uh, uh, human purposes uh, and the, the, the way in which we, that was where he got involved in environmentalism, that we were doing all sorts of things to the planet we live on uh, without recognizing what the side effects were and the interactions. Although at that point we were thinking more about side effects than about interactions between multiple processes. Um, if you, once you begin to understand the nature of side effects, you ask a different set of questions before you make decisions and before you make projections and analyze what's going to happen. Um, and the same thing is true, for instance, with, with drug testing. The first question people ask is, does a drug work? But the next question should be is, what else does the drug do besides dealing with a pathology? And a certain number of drugs get pulled off the market every year when people realize that the side effects may be more serious than what they're trying to correct. Um, so, 
What the analog to that in the computer world is, I don't know. But because what we do is we try to set up processes for problem solving and supply data for analysis. Um, but we don't give the machine a way of saying, what, what else should I know before I look at this question? You know, there has been so much excitement and sense of discovery around the, the computer, the digital revolution, uh, that I think we're at a moment where we overestimate what can be done with AI, certainly as it stands at the moment. One of the most essential elements of human wisdom at its best is humility, is knowing that you don't know everything. And there's a sense in which we haven't learned how to build humility into our interactions with our devices. Uh, the computer doesn't know what it doesn't know and is willing to make projections when it hasn't been provided that ev with everything that would be relevant to those projections. Um, how we get there, I don't know. But I think it's important to be aware of it, to realize that there are limits to what we can do with AI. I mean, it's great for computation and arithmetic and saves huge amounts of labor. But it seems to me it lacks humility. It lacks imagination. Um, it lacks humor, which doesn't mean you can't bring those things into your interactions with your devices, uh, or particularly in communicating with other human beings. Uh, but it does mean that elements of intelligence, and I, would, at this, I like the word wisdom, because wisdom is more multi-dimensional, um, are going to be lacking. You know, what I've realized lately is that there was, there's been a sort of hiatus in my life that as a child I had the early conversations of the cybernetic revolution going on around me. And, and I can look at examples and realize that, that one of my parents was trying to teach me something that was directly connected with what they were doing, what they were thinking about in the context of cybernetics. Um, one of my favorite memories of my childhood uh, was my father helping me set up an aquarium. And in retrospect, I understand that he was teaching me to think about a community of organisms in interaction uh, 
interdependent and the issue of keeping them in balance so that it would be a healthy community. Um, that was, you know, when just at the beginning of our looking at the natural world in terms of ecology and balance and so on, rather than itemizing what's there, looking at the relationships rather than the separate things. Um, now, bless his heart, he didn't tell me he was teaching me about cybernetics. I think I would have walked out on him. But I think he was. And I, or another way to say is, is teaching me to think about systems. Gregory coined the term schismogenesis in 1936 from uh, observing the culture of a New Guinea tribe, the Yatmo, in which there was a lot of what is what he called schismogenesis is now called positive feedback. It's what happens in an arms race. You have a point of friction, some sort, and you feel threatened by, let's say, another nation. So you get a few more tanks. And they look at it, and they say, they're, they're arming against us. And they get a lot more tanks. And then you get more tanks, and they get more tanks, or airplanes, or bombs, or whatever it is. That's positive feedback. Uh, the alternative would be, if you saw them getting tanks, to say, I better get rid of my tanks. Let's cool the, the arms race instead of escalating neutrally. Um, uh, so Gregory was talking about that um, and didn't really have a term for it and invented the term schismogenesis. Genesis being bring, to mean bringing into being greater and greater schism, conflicts. Um, so that, that was before the concept of uh, positive feedback had, had been coined. He, what, that's what he was talking about. The kind of feedback that accelerates a process rather than controlling it. Um, which is a very important concept. Uh, I, and I would say, you know, the great majority of Americans still believe that positive feedback is when someone pats you on the back and says you did a good job. Uh, what positive feedback is, is saying do more of the same. And if what you're doing is uh, taking heroin or quarreling with your neighbor, this is just going to lead to trouble. Negative feedback corrects what you're doing. It's not somebody coming and saying, that was a lousy speech. It's somebody coming and saying, reverse course, stop building more bombs. Um, 
stop taking in more alcohol faster, slow down. Uh, so negative feedback is corrective feedback. And then he wrote a paper about an arms race and made the move from thinking about the New Guinea tribe to uh, the nature of arms races in the modern world, which we still have plenty of. Well, at the beginning of the war, my parents, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, um, who had very recently met and married, uh, met, and I don't know the whole history of this, they met Lawrence K. Frank, who was an executive of the Macy Foundation. And as a result of that, both of them were involved in the Macy conferences on cybernetics, um, which continued then for 20 years. Um, my mother was, they, they still quote her constantly in talking about a second order cybernetics the cybernetics of cybernetics. Um, and, um, and refer to Gregory as well. Gregory, I think, stayed with, it was more interested in, Gregory was more interested in cybernetics as uh, abstract uh, analytical techniques. And my mother was more interested in how can we apply this uh, to human relations. I, th I, I think my two parents looked at the cybernetics conferences rather differently. Um, and that my mother's in initially opposing the concept of what is the cybernetics of cybernetics, what is second order cybernetics, came out of the anthropological approach to participant observation. How can you do something and observe yourself doing it? So, so she was saying, okay, you guys, you're inventing a science of cybernetics, but are you looking at your process of inventing it? And also your process of uh, uh, publishing and explaining and interpreting and so on and so forth. Because of course one of the problems in the United States has been that pieces of cybernetics have exploded into tremendous economic activity and all of computer science, but that much of the systems theory side of cybernetics has been sort of a stepchild. And I, I firmly believe that it's, this, it's the systems thinking that is critical. Uh, so I think when, at the point where she said, you guys need to look at what you're doing, and she said, what is the cybernetics of cybernetics? What she was saying is, stop and look at your own process and understand it. Eventually, I suppose, you do run into the infinite recursion problem, but 
I guess you get used to that. Ever read a letter to? How do you know that you know what what you know? When I think about the excitement of those early years of the cybernetic conferences, I think that one of the I think so, several there have been several losses. Um, one has that the the explosion of uh, devices and manufacturing and the huge economic effect of uh, computer technology uh, has overshadowed the epistemological curiosity on which it was built of how we know what we know and how that affects decision-making and so on. Uh, and it's, if you say anything, if you use the word cyber in our society now, people think that means a device. It does not evoke the whole mystery of what maintains balance or how a system is kept from going off kilter, which was the kind of thing that motivated the question in the first place. And I think that it's probably not the first time that's happened, that a, a, a technology with a very wide spectrum of uses has been so effective for certain problems that that's obscured the other possible uses. People are not using cybernetic models as much as they should be, for instance, in thinking about medicine. Um, we are thinking more than we used to about, well, what happens you know, 50 years ago you had uh, chicken pox and now you have shingles. What happened? How did the virus survive? It went into hiding. It took a different form. And so we're, we're finding examples of problems that we thought we'd solved that we may have made worse. Uh, we have taller smokestacks on factories now, uh, trying to prevent um, smog and acid. But what we're getting is the the uh, fumes are traveling further, higher up, and coming down in the form of acid rain. Um, and now, what, now let's look at that. Someone has tried to solve a problem. They did solve a problem. They reduced smog. But we still are throw garbage out and think it disappears. We put smoke up the chimney. We think, where does it go? It's gone. It isn't gone. It's gone somewhere. And we need to look at the entire system. What happens to the smoke? what happens to the uh, wash-off of fertilizer, 
uh, into, into brooks and streams. So in that sense, we're using the technology uh, to correct a problem without understanding the epistemology of the problem, that the problem is connected to a larger system and it's not solved by the quick, quick fix. I think that um, if you look back at the cybernetics conferences, you find a lot of examples that could be applied to social and human problems that have not been. Um, people don't learn, most people don't learn about cybernetics, they buy devices. Um, cybernetics, because it developed a whole branch of communication theory, is really a way of thinking, not an industry. And we, in our relations with other nations, for instance, we get caught in schismogenesis, arms races, competitions, um, you know, escalations of various sorts, um, without people being aware that that's what's happening, without them thinking through uh, what needs to be attended to in order to solve a problem. Um, we think that we can solve drug addiction by um, punitive police enforcement. Doesn't work. In fact, it makes more jobs for policemen and prison guards. Um, we are not, we're not using systems theory to think about social problems most of the time. Business problems, yes, there are specialists. Business schools even teach systems theory. But we're not raising our children to be systems thinkers. And I think that's what we need to do. Now, you don't have to know a lot of technical terminology to be a systems thinker. And one of the things that I've been realizing lately that I find fascinating as an anthropologist is that if you look at belief systems and religions going back, way back in history, around the world, very often what you realize is that people have intuitively understood systems and use metaphors to think about them. The, the example that really grabbed me on that is I was thinking about the Greek gods, you know, the pantheon of Greek gods, Zeus and Hera and Apollo and Demeter and all them. And I suddenly realized that what the, the, in the mythology, they're married, they have children, the sun and the moon are brother and sister. 
right? Apollo and, and um, Diana, uh, Artemis. Um, and, and they have quarrels among the gods, marriages, divorces, and so on. So you can use the, the Greek pantheon because it is based on kinship to take advantage of pe what people have learned from their observation of their friends and relatives. So actually it turns out that the, the Greek religious system is a way of translating uh, what you know about your sisters and your cousins and your aunts into knowledge about what's happening to the weather and the climate and the crops and uh, international relations and all sorts of things. It becomes a, a, a metaphor is always a, a framework for thinking, using knowledge of this to think about that. Right. No, I mean, religion is, is an adaptive tool, among other things. It's, it's, it is, it's, it is a, a form of analogic thinking. And, and the, the other, of course, thing I like to talk about is that we, we carry an analog machine around with us all the time. It's called our body. And it's got all these different organ organs that interact. They're interdependent. If one of them goes out of kilter, the others go out of kilter eventually. And this is true in society. This is how dis-ease dis spreads through a community. It's because everything is connected. Um, and I mean, there are, there are a couple of, of other things that are very striking. I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, what you see, which is, you can also see in young children, is they learn to tell the differences between things, to keep them apart. Mommy's not the same as Daddy. Daddy's not the same as Brother. Uh, a, a dog, I can remember my daughter learned the word goggy, which obviously was doggy, but then she said the cow was a goggy, because it had four legs, I guess. Uh, but then you have to learn to distinguish the cow from the dog. So when we, when we think about a child developing, you have to learn to distinguish between things, and this is this, and this is that is that, right? Um, and starting with the book of Genesis, each thing is created separately. They don't evolve from a single whole. Um, and God separates the day from the night, the light from the dark, the dry land from the, from the water. And then you end up with a large number of rules of things that have to be kept separate. Okay? So this issue of keeping things distinct 
meat and milk to be kept separate. You can't weave two different kinds of fibers into the same fabric. You can't plow with an ox and an ass. You have to two oxen or whatever. Um, so what you have is this elaboration which is intellectually profound. I mean, taxonomy is, is an essential basis for all we know about the natural world. We have learned to classify, you know, a bee is not a butterfly. Um, so that you can see happening in ma many forms of, of religion and mythology. And then, in some later forms, the switch is from making distinctions to recognizing relationships. Uh, and essentially what comes along, if you look at the New Testament, is Jesus keeps violating all the rules about keeping things separate, which makes people very angry because that's what they've been taught. Um, but he's constantly posing the question, what's the connection? And not, what's the difference? Um, so, um, and, and if you think about this, you, you see that this constant necessity of the first, of recognizing that things are separate and different and can be used in different ways. And then seeing that everything is connected and how it's connected and interdependent. That this is a, a sort of a permanent balance in human intellect, this process. Uh, and you can see, if you look at the, the history of a mythology or you can see people moving slowly forward. You can look at the history of science. Things that were once equated, we now see as separate. We can only go so far in breaking down more and more elementary particles. Um, we're still finding particles, so we're still interested in the separation of things, but we're also still discovering relationships. One of the things that I've been talking about recently uh, is, uh, well, I've been very much in involved in issues around climate change. And climate change really comes from proceeding on one path without recognizing how that will affect other aspects of our reality. Um, and take it another step, uh, one of the things that is kind of hard to get across to people is that when human beings are uncomfortable, they fight or move. At this point, we have a, a refugee crisis, migrations, people leaving areas where their ways of making a living don't work any longer because of climate change. Uh, 
We also have conflict happening as one country wants to control more arable land, you know, Lebensraum, uh, and so people are fighting about land or about fishing rights or about what have you. Um, and uh, so a huge amount of human conflict that arises from climate change and is misdiagnosed. The, it's now generally, well, I think most people don't, do, don't realize it, but it's, the story's been put together that the Arab Spring of a few years ago, that many Americans said, oh good, they're rebelling against their authoritarian governments and they're, they're going to become democratic. Well, they didn't. Um, but that the, the cause of the Arab Spring was a five-year drought of bad harvests. Now, not total negative harvests, but a lot of people having difficulty feeding their families. So they migrated from the villages to the cities looking for jobs with, where they would be paid money and could buy food for their families. And there were no jobs in the cities. So they had revolutions. You know, I, I want to say something which is really would not be welcome in many circles. I think the tragedy of the cybernetic revolution, which really had two faces, it had the computer science side and the systems theory side, and the tragedy has been the neglect of the systems thinking side of it, because we chose marketable gadgets in preference to a deeper understanding of the world we live in.